It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. And Julie, a long-time CQ contributor, is also with us. Today's topic is, do I suffer from rapture anxiety? The rapture is one of those biblically interpretive teachings that bring very emotional reactions. Some believe when this rapture happens, worldwide chaos will immediately follow. Some look forward to being taken, and some are overwhelmed with fear. The question is, is all this emotion based on fact or fiction? The theme scripture for today's episode is 1 Thessalonians 4:17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Christianity is divided into many denominations and groups. These divisions create a wide variety of teachings that elicit a wide variety of reactions. Let's take this rapture, as we mentioned, as an example. In its basic form, it interprets the scriptures to say that when Jesus returns with a shout and a trumpet, he raises the dead Christians to him first, and then all those faithful who are still living will be dramatically and immediately taken up with him as well. For both Christians and non-Christians, the drama of this view brings eye rolls and disdain from some, excitement and anticipation from some, and an all-out fear and trauma from others. The rapture is a big teaching that is based upon a few scriptures. The big question is, does this teaching fit squarely with the original Christian doctrine we learn from the Bible? Rick, you just described the classic rapture idea made popular by books and movies whereby Jesus suddenly and dramatically returns to earth to collect his church. The faithful ones do not die, but are snatched up into heaven, and the unbelievers are left behind to experience extreme tribulation. This is a popular teaching in the United States. We will talk more about its origin in other parts of this series. So this term rapture anxiety has been around a while, but it's come to our attention recently in a CNN.com article called, For Some Christians, Rapture Anxiety Can Take a Lifetime to Heal. The article is about former evangelicals calling themselves ex-evangelicals and other denominations who say they've experienced religious trauma from this idea of a rapture. It's also being called end times anxiety. We're going to talk more about this as we move forward. But to get started, it's important to know that the concept of rapture is defined in many different ways by different Christians. But they generally all start with one main verse. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, taken in a literal way, these scriptures describe a very dramatic and closely spaced series 
of world-changing events. Two other scriptures that can be seen as maybe supporting the rapture teaching. First, we have one in 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, writing about the mystery of the spiritual resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be all changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So you have here an instantaneous change that reflects our previous scripture. So we're putting these together, and you're seeing this this teaching have some kind of a basis to go forward with. One more main teaching from uh, Matthew 24, 36, 41. This is Jesus himself giving the prophecy of his return. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So when we look at these scriptures, we can see you pull these events together and you say, wow, there can be something pretty dramatic here going on. These scriptures seem to indicate this snatching away of some and not others. And the anxiety people experience comes a lot from the Matthew prophecy. Let me quote from that CNN article. A latent fear of an impending inevitable end are very common among communities of religious trauma survivors. On social media, former church members recall being tricked by church leaders into watching violent rapture-themed films or crying themselves to sleep, thinking about people and pets that would be left behind when the end finally came. One woman said that while growing up in an evangelical community, talk of the rapture was so intrinsic that children would play pranks to scare each other into believing everyone around them had been raptured. Here's another quote from the article. Survivors also cite the influence of fiction works like the Left Behind book series and the 2000 movie adaptation, which they say were presented in their church circles as accurate glimpses into a post-rapture future. These works have reached such a level of infamy in these faith communities that some survivors say the descriptions of suffering and terror in these series greatly influence their rapture-related fears. There's a lot of online buzz about rapture anxiety. For example, we quote a Reddit post from someone calling themselves Snowborn77. They say this, When I was a kid, I was certain that the world would end before I turned even 18. Every time my mom went out and was even five minutes late in coming back, I got anxious that she'd been raptured and that I would eventually be tortured to receive the mark of the beast on my forehead. I would turn on the radio to see if there were any reports in the news of people disappearing. I had dreams about running in the woods and hiding from the agents of the Antichrist running around with 666 branding irons. The only assurance I got that the rapture had not happened was if I saw or heard an airplane in the sky, although that could have just meant that the pilot wasn't a Christian. This was pretty traumatic in retrospect, end quote. That's pretty amazing. You, you, it's sad. You, yeah, yeah and, 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 and you look at that, and you look at it from the standpoint of trauma, and you say, 
there's a lot here. There's a lot of difficulties here that need to be addressed. Well, we said there's going to be a lot of variations. There's a lot of variations in people with who believe in the rapture. Right. Here's just a few of the differences that we found about Jesus's return, his second advent. His first advent was on earth as a man. He lived and died on the cross and he returns a second time. Some say he returned as a resurrected spirit being. Others think he's going to take the form of a human man again. Well, we understand him to return as a spirit being. Yes, and the purpose of Jesus' return. Most are in agreement that the purpose is to gather his faithful followers and judge the rest of the world, but they differ on where Israel fits in. Some think that physical Israel will be involved, including the regathering of the Jewish people to restore Israel. And which, of course, has already taken place in 1948. And some include converting Jewish people to Christianity in that, and others don't believe in that literal Israel is involved in the end times. Another difference, how many times more does he return? Is it once, twice, or once but in stages? And again, the answer differs on who you talk to. And we strongly recommend listening to episode 1185, What Are the True Reasons for Jesus' Return to Earth? Now, the biggest differences between those who believe the rapture will happen is when does Jesus return to gather his faithful followers in relation to other time markers of the end times? And you're going to hear these two variations when you look at this topic. The first one, does he return before, during, or after the time of tribulation? And the second is, does he return before, during, or after the millennial kingdom? Let's look closer at that first one. Does he return before, during, or after the time of tribulation? Now, Daniel 12, 1, we're going to talk about that. It talks about a time of trouble. Revelation 7, 14 talks about a great tribulation. And there's other scriptures that talk about this difficult time. And people even differ on how long it might be. Classic rapture teaching is considered pre-tribulational. So in this view, the rapture is separate and distinct event from the second coming. If you had a timeline in front of you and you're looking from left to right, the faithful are raptured into heaven, followed by a time of trouble or tribulation on the earth. And after the tribulation, Jesus returns with his church to judge the world. The true followers of Jesus don't go through that time of tribulation because they're taken away in the clouds beforehand. But they return to earth when the tribulation's over. That's pre-tribulational. Post-tribulational rapture teaching says the rapture and the second coming happen at the same time after the tribulation's over. In other words, the church does go through the tribulation. There's even a mid-tribulation rapture teaching that says the tribulation starts and at some point before it ends, the rapture occurs. The second coming happens when the tribulation is over. Therefore, the rapture and second coming are separate and distinct events. Now, sprinkle into this the time marker of the Antichrist revealed and whether or not there'll be an evil one world government. And there's a lot of variation on belief. Okay. Having said all of that, there's a quiz in five minutes. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) There's a lot of details here. And there's a lot of perspectives that you say, okay, what's true? And that's why we're going to ask a lot of questions and break this subject up into a lot of pieces. There's several questions that need answering, and we are going to do this through a three-part series because we want to work on this very clearly and methodically and scripturally and understand what really happens according to Scripture. So we're going to introduce to you seven questions that we will go through in this three-part series. First, 
What's the reason for the Apostle? The Apostle Paul is writing uh, this information to the Thessalonian church. Second question, does all of this happen in a simultaneous manner when Jesus makes his grand entrance back to earth? Third question, does Jesus literally shout as the archangel and carry God's literal trumpet? Fourth question, do the dead Christians from the past 2,000 years all rise in an instant? Fifth question, for those Christians alive at this event, are their human lives instantly ended once the others have been raised? The sixth question, what does being caught up together with them in the clouds actually mean? And finally, the seventh question, (laughs) listen to all this and all those perspectives, the seventh question, how is all of this comforting and not traumatizing? So a lot of ground to cover, folks. We're going to walk through it one step at a time. So Jonathan, we're going to be looking at a rapture reassessment. Where are we beginning with that? As we can see, the scriptures do point to some very dramatic events that are involved with Jesus' return. Now is when the careful study begins because we know that the events being described can only be properly interpreted by using scriptural context along with a clear understanding of the how and why of Jesus' return. The how and why of Jesus' return. So, such a big subject, so many questions, so many contradictory ideas, so much anxiety, so much to learn. Was the reason the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church to teach them about the traumatic events of the rapture? The Apostle Paul wrote to the brotherhood in Thessalonica out of a deep and abiding love. First Thessalonians overflows with affection and fond memories of how they came to accept the gospel in the midst of tribulation. Paul lamented over his inability to go and see them again and spoke of the relief that he had after he sent Timothy to check on their spiritual welfare. Paul wrote to encourage their faithfulness. This is a really important point. He wrote to encourage their faithfulness. Let's look at how that unfolds. The end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 signals what Paul wants to next encourage them with. Paul, As Paul was ready to delve into future details, he expressed the profound joy that their faithfulness gave to him. Jonathan, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, We're going to look at verses 9 through 13 in, in a couple of different pieces. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account, as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith? I mean, think about that. Night and day we keep praying to earnestly see your face. You see this tremendous attachment. The apostle then expresses his deep desire to see them. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And I love this because it's the Apostle Paul praying the way Jesus prayed. I want this to happen, Father, but nevertheless, you know, your will be done. There's that sense of, I just want to be with you in fellowship again. He then sets his upcoming direction in teaching as he looks to the return of Jesus. Verses 12 and 13. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, 
so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is a transition into, some, in a, into a part of the doctrine of the gospel. This is an important verse, and we're going to come back to this verse later and spend some, uh, some time as it's foundational, because he's talking about the return of Jesus. Now, perhaps Paul is setting out to accomplish two things here. First, he will be teaching the Thessalonian brethren about important future events involved in the Lord's return. Second, he may be, he may be setting up encouragement for them to stand strong in the event that he can't come to see them again. But, and, he's, and, he's, and he's setting them up to stand strong by reminding them that they will all be united in Christ at his return. So that's the context of this main scripture. Let's pause here to take another look at that rapture viewpoint. We said earlier there were two main variations. The first was, does Jesus return before, during, or after the time of tribulation? And the second one is, does Jesus return before, during, or after the millennial kingdom? So look at the second variation. We have to understand what is meant by millennial kingdom or millennium as discussed in the book of Revelation. The answers vary here, too. Some believe it is a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus and his church on earth. Others believe it is a figurative period of time, like saying a long time. We understand there to be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus, which begins at his second advent. Satan's binding is also taking place during this period of time, according to Revelation 20, 1 through 8. Thank you. So back to the variation, does Jesus return before, during, or after the millennial kingdom? Some say the rapture happens before both the tribulation and the millennium. Now, theologically, this is called premillennialism. For the last century, this belief has been common among evangelical Christians. And as we already said, some believe in either pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, or mid-tribulational premillennialism. It gets kind of complicated, <laughs> depending on where on the stream of time you place the end markers. Others say post-millennialism is correct. They say the rapture comes after both the tribulation and the millennium because Jesus returns after the millennium. So this post-millennialism is important. You might have heard the phrase social gospel, that we believe in a social gospel. That's popular among those holding this post-millennialism belief. It includes the idea that faithful Christians can force the kingdom to happen by their actions. And that's one reason why we see Christian churches, especially in the United States, getting more involved in politics to lobby governments towards godliness. A post-millennialist would say it's our job to root out all evil so that Christ can return and set up his kingdom like a renovation of society. If we can only clean everything up, then Christ would return. Okay, <laughs> there's a lot of perspectives there. And what we want to do is understand that all of these perspectives exist. They're all there and there are lots of Christians that truly, truly, truly believe in all of these different things. That's good. That's fine. But what do the scriptures say? That's really where we want to go with this. Now, before we really, really dig into the, 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 the teaching aspect of this, let's get back to and the, the, the reason that the Apostle Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians. And there's a big reason that we're going over this right now. So give us this moment here. We're going to put this in order, and you're going to see that there's a basis 
in the reasoning for writing this letter that helps us understand the teaching that some people call the rapture. So chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians uh, continues with the Apostle Paul exhorting the Thessalonian brotherhood to continue in a high standard of personal moral living. Jonathan, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So he's saying, you work hard, but work harder. Excel more. You're doing a wonderful job. Keep going. Excel higher. And then he continues, and he also says to apply that standard, that excel more to how they treat the brotherhood. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll go down to verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So now he's brought the brotherhood into this high level of excel more. And he continues, and he also wants them to apply this highest standard of personal integrity and responsibility with all men. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Well, Rick and Julie, what Paul was saying is faithfulness has a reward. One, excel in your personal spiritual growth. Two, be clear in your relationship with the brethren. Three, have integrity with your relationship with the world. So Paul puts all of this in place, and then, and then he goes into the depth of this teaching. And folks, it's important to realize that all of this has to be in place first. He next, the apostle next unfolds another form of higher living. He teaches hope for those of their number who have died based on their Christian faith. And you say, well, why, what, what hope? I mean, we all have hope, but we, we got to read the scripture and then get a little bit of background on it to better understand it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Various Bible commentaries say that those in this church were mourning the untimely death of their friends. I have a quick quote here from the pulpit commentary. It says this, they expected that Christ would come immediately and establish his kingdom on earth. And consequently, they feared that those who had died would be excluded from it. The Christian faith was new at this time, and Paul specifically did not want these new Christians to feel the grief others felt when those close to them died. Because Jesus died and rose again, these faithful who died would be the first receiving their reward. All of Paul's encouragement up to this point was built around living a Christ-like life. And this was about trading our human emotions, our human reactions for spiritual ones, like the human reaction of grief for those who died. So what we have is the apostle giving them this tremendous personal encouragement. Grow in the spirit in, in your lives with the brotherhood and how you treat others. And in, your, in the trials of losing some of your loved ones, don't despair. There's wonderful hope here. 
Remember, 1 Thessalonians is written as a letter of dramatic hope. This is important, because when we get to the, quote, rapture, unquote, teaching, we see things are not really hopeful, but very scary. And it doesn't seem to quite line up with the Apostle Paul and his purpose here. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look at that in much greater depth as we go. But again, this letter is all about encouragement. It all has to do with walking in Jesus' footsteps, understanding that blessings happen in the face of trial. It's now that Paul opens up his teaching on some of the events surrounding Jesus' return. Rick, are we supposed to worry in any way about what Paul wrote here? The point is, no, it's all about the encouragement of the body of Christ. And we want to see that clearly and in a focused way. This is a letter that you're supposed to read and feel better about everything. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the way it should fit into your life. Sometimes when people hear the rapture teaching, they don't feel better. They feel much worse. That is contrary to the reason the Apostle Paul wrote the letter. Why do we have a contrary reaction to something that's supposed to be so good? Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Jonathan, rapture, reassessment, what do we have? The context of this teaching by Paul is very positive and uplifting. What he will now point us to is meant to continue his very uplifting message. Because we know that God's plan for all of humanity is positive, how much more positive will this portion of the plan, which focuses on Jesus' followers, be? So, even though there are both positive and negative responses to the upcoming verses, the Apostle Paul has set the table for rejoicing in a big way. The next verses are the basis for the rapture teaching. Do they all happen in a simultaneous manner when Jesus makes his grand entrance back to earth? Here is where we need to slow way down and focus in on the scriptures. The apostles' next lessons are specific and detailed and need to be observed in the light of context and the light of reason. So as we look at this, if we are causing or we are suffering anxiety with our interpretations of what the Apostle Paul is teaching, there must be something missing with that interpretation. There has to be something wrong because it is a purely inspirational set of verses. Now, some some Christians may say, well, you know, those Christians who don't have enough faith are the ones who are worried, and rightfully should be. That is not the way the Apostle Paul is writing this. He is writing this to be clear in terms of what will happen so that all are encouraged, even if your faith is a little shaky. And as we go through this, we'll see how that, that the reason for stress, it actually goes away when we understand appropriate interpretation of Scripture. So Jonathan, you asked, do all of these things happen in these verses in a simultaneous manner? And the answer is no, they don't. They absolutely don't according to Scripture. So why do we say that? Let's requote 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 to 15, to set the groundwork for why we say, no, it's not all simultaneous, but there is a spacing that is very important and very necessary. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 14 to 15. And this is from the Rotherham translation. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
so also will God bring forth with him them who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For this unto you do we say by a word of the Lord, that we, the living, who are left unto the presence of the Lord, shall in no wise get before them who have fallen asleep. Well, this hints at a specific order of resurrection at the return of Jesus. Those faithful followers who fell asleep in death first will be raised first. Now, many Christians assume that those faithful who died, such as the Apostle Paul, immediately went to heaven. This tells us all are asleep in death awaiting Jesus' return. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, which we won't read yet, tells us that the resurrection, starting with the resurrecting his faithful followers, is triggered by the return of Jesus. That's a really big point. So when did people who died first start going to heaven? Jesus has to return first. So if you believe the return is yet future, then the faithful are still in their graves. And maybe this is a clue. When, Jonathan, you read 1 Thessalonians 15 at the beginning of this episode, it was from the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 1995 edition. And it said in part that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Here in this Rotherham translation, it says that we, the living who are left unto the presence of the Lord, which is correct. The coming of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. One implies an arrival and the other implies an unfolding. And that's where we have to go with this. We need to start with the very basics of what happens when, when, when Jesus returned. How is the Apostle Paul referring to the return of Jesus here? And what we will see is this is a bigger picture. What we're going to see is that Jesus' presence is not a coming, a moment in time, but it is a presence, a process of time. Not a moment in time, but a process of time. And folks, if you get this scriptural point, this whole thing begins to present itself more clearly. So Jonathan, let's go to the definition of that word that in Rotherham's translated presence and in the New American Standard was translated coming. And the word coming in the Greek, uh, the word is parousia, and it means a being near. And it comes from a word which means to be near, that is at hand. So one example of coming or presence, parousia, is found in Philippians 2, 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And for more detail on this, we recommend listening to episode 1194, Could Jesus Return Without You Knowing? So the word in that verse, not as in my presence, that's exactly the same word. And you can't, you can't finagle that to mean not at the moment of my arrival, but in, in my presence. There's a, there's a process of time that's implied there. Presence indicates a period of time. It's not a moment of appearing. And just so you get it, I want to say it again. Presence indicates a period of time and not a moment of appearing. Jesus, in his great prophecy of his return, describes his return as the sun rising in the east and traveling through the sky. Jonathan, let's look at Matthew 24, 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, is that word coming properly translated here? 
And Rick, why are you saying his return is like the sun when the verse we just read calls it lightning? (laughs) Questions, questions, questions. Uh, Luke's account of this same verse, this same teaching, is going to help us see this a little bit more clearly. It's going to verify two very, very critical points. So, Jonathan, as a, to answer that question, let's look at Luke seventeen twenty four, From the King James Version. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Well, If I say, in the day of the king, it means during the time the king reigned, not some future time. So shall also the Son of Man be in his day. In his day means when he is here, not on his way, to arrive at a future time. Now, in his day helps us properly translate the Matthew account. That Greek word, parousia, translated coming, should actually be presence. It's in his day. Using presence verifies that Jesus was talking about conditions occurring after his return, when he's actually here, not when he is on his way. And it's not just at the moment of his, re- of his arrival. It's so shall the Son of Man be in his day. That's a long time. You know, back in my grandfather's day, what does that mean? All those years that my grandfather lived. So we have to see it for what it means. So the presence really does shine through here. But what about lightning? Julie, you asked about lightning. Jonathan, let's, let's get a little bit of definition background on this word for lightning. Yeah, the Greek word for lighteneth can mean glare, lightning, brightness, or gleam of a lamp. So you can see that it's a broader meaning than just a flash of light. So both Matthew and Luke really do appear to be describing the sun's movement from the east and to the west. There's, the, there's this constant glare of the sun from the time it rises and going through its cycle. Then you've got one part of heaven shining to the other part. That definitely sounds like how the sun appears in our sky throughout the day. It seems more than a sudden flash of lightning. And it makes me think that maybe, Jonathan, when you read the initial question for this segment, you uh, it's like a little trick question because you said when Jesus makes his grand entrance back to earth, I'm not sure that there's a grand entrance yet. (laughs) Well, like a sunrise gradually revealed over time, we're going to see how the second presence of Jesus is first It is faint and imperceivable. Then it grows to a point of being obviously manifest. Finally, it rises to a full revelation of its power. And that's one of the things that we need to slow down and absorb. So let's look at the return of Jesus. And remember, the return means the presence, the time in which he's here, not the moment at which he arrives. Jesus and the Apostle Paul both told us that his presence, that Jesus' presence, begins in a thief-like manner. We know that from—we're just going to quote one verse here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So Jesus' return begins quietly, like a thief— like the faint cracks of dawn in the eastern sky. Have you ever sat and watched the sunrise? It literally begins in the dark. (laughs) Now, coming as a thief means you're in a house and nobody knows you're there. 
Jesus was in Satan's house, this present evil world, before anyone knew it. That's how he could begin binding Satan. He took him by surprise. Okay, so let, let's look at this, because we're, we're going to be scripturally unfolding the return of Jesus, and we're going to suggest to you that it works in stages, in very specific stages. So I'm going to tell a story along with our unfolding so we can get a sense of it. Suppose, Jonathan, that you have invited Julie and Doug and Trish and I to your house. You know, you and Julie are going to have us over for dinner. You'd do that, right? I mean, oh, right? we'd love to have uh, company okay. just, over. Just sure. making sure. She's an excellent cook, I might add. <laughs> so we get to your house, and now we don't know, but dinner started. We don't know that. We just walk into the house. Hey, how are you? It's good to see you. And we're talking. In the kitchen, dinner has been started, but we have no idea it's there. We just know we're having a good time with our fellowship together, okay? That's kind of return like a thief. It's something is happening. You just don't know what's going on. So the second phase, the second phase of Jesus' return, his parousia, that Greek word, uh, according to Scripture, is the manifestation of his presence. It's his manifestation being being understood somewhat. Jonathan, let's define that word for manifestation, and then we'll go into a scripture. And that Greek word is... Epiphania. Epiphania. Thank you very much, Julie. And yeah. that it means a manifestation. So the, let me give you an example of what manifestation means. With environmental exposures, there's often what's called a latent manifestation of disease. You might be exposed to a cancer-causing chemical today, for example, but the manifestation of the disease, like the first time the cancer cells can be detected in your blood, might not show up for many years or even decades after the exposure. It exists, but it's not yet detectable. Symptoms of the disease are delayed. So in this case, the parousia was earlier, but now the epiphania is finally detectable. So you have the parousia. Now the presence works through this whole thing, but it starts undetected, like Jonathan, like you said, with the, 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 the thief in the night, or Julie, you said that those things are, are not, you have no idea that there is any, any exposure whatsoever. It starts that way, and then his presence goes into a, a phase that there are signs that something is happening. There are signs. Let's look at a scripture that helps us to see that. Paul, in 1 Timothy, speaks of the manifesting of Jesus' return as a target for the faithful to watch. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing or manifestation, that's the word, epiphania of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why until his appearing and not until his, 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 his return, his, his, his presence? Because Jesus' return is a process that begins with the quiet first steps of dismantling this present evil world. Now think about it. The apostle is not saying, well, you know, be strong until Jesus returns, because first of all, nobody knew when. And Jesus himself said, it would be as a thief in the night. So Paul's not saying, hey, look forward to the thing that you're not going to know. He's saying, look forward to something that you will see signs of. Now, why are we taking all this time talking about the way Jesus returns when we're talking about the teaching of the rapture? Folks, because if you understand 
that the return of Jesus is a process that develops over time. It takes all of the wind out of the sails of everything having to happen all at once. It takes the trauma away. It takes the drama away. And this is the way the the scriptures are written. This is how the scriptures describe it. So the idea of the rapture teaching is not fitting in line with these things. So you've got this return, this process, this dismantling, this manifestation phase is where the signs of his presence begin to be uncovered. And you talked about these first quiet steps of dismantling this present evil world. And that's another key point where we differ. This dismantling is different from a renovation. We talked about how there's those groups of sincere Christians thinking that this present evil world needs to be cleaned up in all respects, socially, environmentally, governmentally, before Jesus can return to usher in God's kingdom. But this is being dismantled. It's a leveling. Yeah, yeah, it's a leveling. So let's go back to the story where Julie, you and Doug and Trish and I are at Jonathan and Jules' house. And we're there, we're talking, and you know, dinner's cooking on the stove. We didn't know it. But after a little bit, you go, boy, something smells good. You're not sure what it is, but there is a manifestation, there is a sign, there's a, a signal that something smells really good. And you're going, hmm, makes my mouth kind of water a little bit. Okay? <laughs> a manifest, you still don't know what it is. So let's follow that story as we unfold how Jesus returns to show that everything doesn't happen in this one small instant. So let's get to the third stage of Jesus' presence, and that is his revealing. Jonathan, what about the Greek words that help us understand that part? Well, we're going to read from Luke 17, where the Greek verb apocalypto is translated into English as the word revealed. It means to take off the cover, that is, disclose. Its noun form is apocalypsis, meaning disclosure. And sometimes it's translated as revealed or revelation. So at this point, these Greek words tell us that the lid is off. You literally took off the cover. So now, Julie, we're at his house, and like it's like this is the best stew you've ever seen. Because they take the cover off, it's like, oh, that's what's for dinner. So we got there, and we knew the dinner was coming, but had no idea what. Then you got a sense of, smells good, there's something happening. And then it's like, okay. It's obvious we're going to have a great dinner. So, Jonathan, we'll be over next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and Thursday and Friday. So, so let, let, let's look at Luke 17, verses 26 to 27 and verse 30 as an example of this revelation. And just as it has happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. And that word revealed here is apocalypto, to disclose. So you've got the days of Noah. Remember talking about the days before in, in those lightning scriptures, which mean the, the, the sunrise and, and the pathway of the sun. The days of Noah included all that happened before the flood as well as the flood and all that happened after. Those were the days of Noah. It was a long period of time. And the days of Jesus is seen by all who all who he is, and includes all of the process of his return before that revelation. The process of his return 
is in place and working and it begins manifesting and then everybody gets it. So what the scriptures tell us about the return of Jesus is it's quiet. Nobody knows. Then it slowly, quietly manifests in small ways, then larger ways. And then it comes to a point where everybody will understand. We know that from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Every eye will see him, but only, only after he's come quietly, taken this world from Satan, gathered his true church, and reestablished Israel. Those are some of the big, big main things that have to happen. Uh, After the trouble that follows these things, Jesus will be revealed as the King of Kings as he fully establishes God's kingdom on earth and abolishes sin, sickness, and death. So these verses help us understand that the return of Jesus is a process of time, not a moment in time. The rapture teaching looks at things as a moment in time. Folks, that is not scriptural. It just doesn't fit. Jonathan, our rapture reassessment, what do we have? Clearly, the events that the rapture teaching is built upon do not take place in a few crowded moments of time. Jesus' return is a process, and God's plan per its usual execution unfolds piece by piece. Keeping this unfolding process in mind will help us to see the Thessalonians' scriptures as they were meant to be understood. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. It unfolds piece by piece. Look at the way God's plan always unfolds. Doesn't it always take longer than everybody wants it to? That's the way he works. That's the way Jesus' return works. It's part of God's plan, and the scriptures prove it. If we would just remember to take a breath and have faith in God and his plan, our anxiety over the details can now begin to diminish. When he returns, does Jesus literally shout as the archangel and carry God's literal trumpet? All right, careful and contextual study is going to help us see where and when things are symbolic in Scripture and when they are to be taken literally. Because we've already established Jesus' presence, his parousia, as being as beginning stealthily, This helps us to look at the next verses with a broader scriptural perspective. So, folks, we took an entire segment to say it's a process. It's a process to show the scriptural reasoning for it's a process. Now we get into the verse where the action really begins. And this is what causes anticipation, eye rolls, and anxiety, depending on who you are. So this next verse in in 1 Thessalonians actually describes some of those first things that Jesus does when he returns in his thief-like manner. So Jonathan, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, you've got several elements here. Descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God and that causes the dead to rise first. So we need to take this apart piece by piece and understand what is this verse actually telling us. Not what does tradition tell us about it, not what, what, what's an emotional way to look at this, but what is the verse actually telling us? Let's start with the first part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. 
what is a shout? Well, Rick, that word shout means a cry of incitement. And the Thayer's Greek-English lexicon defines it as an order, command, specifically a stimulating cry. Okay, so who's he shouting to? Who's he commanding? And isn't that always the question? (laughs) And if we can understand very carefully what's happening here, it really makes tremendous, tremendous sense. So folks, as we go through this now, the explanation, honestly and truly, take a breath and listen to the scriptural reasoning and see how sensible it is. Remember, Jesus returns as a thief. We've already explained that. So he says, wait, he he comes with a shout. He returns as a thief. How can both possibly be true? Stay with us. Yet we've got this shout, this command. Perhaps this command is the specific command that Jesus himself described in John. Jesus described him giving a very specific, clear, and powerful command in John 5, 26 to 29. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who have done the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So this gives us the big picture. Jesus triggers the resurrection of all because he died for everyone's sins. But this shows us there's an order to the resurrection. Those who did the good deeds doesn't mean just being a good person. These are the true followers of Jesus compared to the, what we might call the everybody else. Yes. Yeah. This is the big picture. But the point is that it is the voice of Jesus that calls all from their graves. That's the point we want to take here. Now, Jesus' words can be easily interpreted as having all come from their graves simultaneously. But other scriptures show us that his voice, his command, spans over time and addresses different classes. Now, Jonathan, you referenced this verse that we're going to read now uh, earlier, and this is an important verse here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And that word coming means parousia, presence. So this is an important verse because it says, as in Adam all die, even so Christ will all be made alive. And you can say, well, it's going to be all at once because Jesus shouts and they all come from their grave. That's not what the apostle explains. He says, but each in his own order, Christ Jesus, the first fruits, those who are faithful unto death, and then the everybody else, Julie, that you had re- referenced earlier. So we see that this command is that command to come from the grave. But it's specific in Thessalonians, talking about those who were in Christ. Now, we're going to get to that in in our second part of this three-part series. But just understand, it's a command that has a specific uh, objective. That's when a commander is giving commands to his army, it's specific, it's clear. There's something that has to be done. And this is giving us a sense of that's what that command is for. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, with the voice of the archangel. 
All right, now what does that mean? Well, as we will see, this voice is a pointed guidance for specific events. A pointed guidance for specific events. Similar, very similar in nature to that command. To help us understand that, let's go to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the name means who is like God, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's Israel, will arise, meaning to stand, to move into action. Now this is another point we differ on from some Christians. We see Michael as Jesus and this Daniel 12, 1 prophecy, this is an end times prophecy. There are five scriptural references of Michael the archangel, and we're going to include more information in the bonus material of this week's CQ Rewind show notes. You can get these for free for every episode at ChristianQuestions.com, our app, and at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So now, oh, here's sorry. my question. Go ahead. Why does Jesus speak with the voice of the archangel here? All right. And that, that's a good question. Why, why the shout and why the voice of the archangel? There's one, one other point on the shout I just wanted to mention, because that shout is to call those from the grave. It's not a shout that the world is going to hear, because it's a spiritual shout. It's a spiritual command for spiritual activity. Same with the voice of the archangel. Why does he speak with the voice of the archangel? Because the archangel is the authority that carries out the will of God, the highest, strongest, most primary authority that's Jesus from the beginning of time through all the rest of eternity. That's who he is. He is the one who always has and always will primarily bring the will of God out. So that's why we see it with the voice of the archangel. It's showing the authority given by God. It's very, very clear. Now look, Israel Israel's regathering has been a modern-day fulfillment of prophecy that continues to go unrecognized by our world. One example is the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. There we're given a picture of dry bones, <laughs> and God breathes on them, and they add muscle and flesh and skin to come alive. The prophecy shows the steps that bring the nation of Israel back to life. For centuries, that nation was dead. It didn't even exist. It was dry bones. So you have this very blatant prophecy that was given all those centuries ago, and the world doesn't, doesn't think anything of it. it, it just, it's just gone by. Well, that prophecy began to be quietly fulfilled way back in the 1800s. In 1878, that was when the first Moshava in Israel, was, uh, which was called Petatikva, was established. And Rick, Petatikva means door of hope. And Mashava was a settlement or colony of independent farmers in Israel who own and work their own land. And that was a historic moment that almost nobody understood or saw. Because now you had the Jewish people back in their homeland with ownership and the ability to work their land. That's what God promised. That was the beginning of that. That, we believe, is the beginning of, 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 of Michael standing up. It's quiet. It's not seen by the world, but it's seen through the spirituality of what's happening. Now, follow that. 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, what happened in the early 1900s? You had dark trouble. Dark clouds of trouble on the world stage developed shortly after this development, and yet this small beginning would reach a significant milestone 70 years later in 1948, when Israel became a nation. God's 
promises unfolding, his prophecies happening, because Michael stands up. Jonathan, let's go back to Daniel. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, this is not some short period of time, but the build-up to and the time of trouble all mentioned in Matthew 24, continuing. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. So you can see that we're, we're focusing in on the voice of the archangel. We can see that the symbols of the Thessalonian verses are developing. You know, we had that, we talked about the command earlier, and now we're focusing in on the voice of the archangel. The command for resurrection, and now the standing up for the directing of God's chosen people back to their land, just as God had, had said would happen so many centuries before. You can really see how the Apostle Paul knew the Old Testament prophecies, and taught them to Christians. And that's another big part of this. Paul's teaching is not some whimsical, magical moment. He's basing what he says in 1 Thessalonians on Old Testament prophecy, on the unfolding of God's plan before their eyes. So continuing in Daniel, Daniel focuses on the earthly resurrection. We're in Daniel chapter 12. Jonathan, let's go to verses 2 and 3. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life but the others to disgrace in everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of the earthly nature. Those who have insight, these are those who are already raised in the first resurrection, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So prophecy, you say, well, wait, what does all that mean? Well, we're not taking the time to dissect all of the details of Daniel chapter 12 right now, but this shining brightly of those who have insight, and those are the first resurrection that the Apostle Paul is speaking of in 1 Thessalonians 4. This shining brightly refers to the final stage of Jesus' parousia, his presence. It refers to his revealing. It refers to the point in time when everybody knows. So, folks, as we begin to look at this and say, okay, what about the rapture? What we've discussed thus far is looking at the many different viewpoints, the many different opinions on how and when the rapture working. You can see that they're all over the map in terms of trying to understand it. When we stop and we look at Scripture and we go methodically through Scripture, what do we see? Well, first we see that the return of Jesus is not a rushed event. It starts out as a thief, quietly, when nobody knows. It grows and becomes more and more manifest, and then there is a bright shining where everybody will obviously know. It's all the same return. It's all the same, but it works in a process. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 is toward the beginning of that process. It's not something everybody sees or understands, but it's there. So when we look at this shout, this command— it is the come forth from the grave. When we look at the voice of the archangel, it is this standing up, this, this putting in place the pieces so that Israel can actually go back to their homeland like they were promised. And then we had the trumpet with the trumpet of God. Well, at this point, we're going to put that piece off to part two because we want to make sure we give it enough time to understand what's going to be happening with that. So what we have thus far is a reason to be able to relax because this is not a moment that causes fear and, and, and anxiety. 
it is a process that happens in the heavenlies that many, we don't even know about. Now, we haven't gotten to the part where, you know, those who are still alive will meet him. We'll get there. That'll be in, in, our, next, in our next podcast. But, uh, Jonathan, let's wrap this up with our rapture reassessment here. Clearly, the shout, the actions of the archangel and the trumpet, which we will study in our next episode, all carry highly spiritual significance. Their effects are only able to be seen by those who are directly affected and those who are specifically tuned into their significance. By transforming these highly spiritual markers into worldly actions, the rapture teaching changes the whole meaning of Paul's teaching in, to the Thessalonians. So one of the things we need to understand is these things are happening on a spiritual level, and we don't see them. We don't hear that command. We don't, we don't hear the voice of the archangel. What we are seeing, what we are hearing, is the manifestations of those actions. And we can see that in Israel. You realize that the reestablishment of Israel is a sign of the return of Jesus. It's there. You can't deny it. Jesus even talked about that in Matthew 24. Folks, there's so much to this, and we need to reassess the rapture and put it in scriptural order because what is taught is not what is scriptural. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions in this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode will be part two. Do I have rapture anxiety? This is a big subject. We're breaking it up to a lot of pieces so we can have a clear understanding. Talk to you next week. 